Good morning. Last week we were looking at the passage in Matthew chapter 18 and we were considering the seriousness of sin. Um, These were actually Jesus' warnings in the gospel regarding temptation, tempting someone else to sin and being tempted to sin ourselves. What was very clear from that sermon was the seriousness of sin. It is serious because when we sin, we are essentially usurping God's authority. We are committing mutiny against his sovereignty. And temptation often leads us to call into question God's goodness, God's justice, and even his wisdom in declaring something sinful in the first place. Sin is so often an issue of the heart before it is ever an issue of our actions. Again and again throughout the book of Leviticus, God commands his people to be holy, for I the Lord am holy. Now in case we might think that that's only for the Israelites, the apostle Peter takes up the clarion call in his epistle and exhorts us, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So while the ones being called may be different, the one doing the calling remains ever the same. What was magnificent, however, was the fact that the motivation for living a holy life is not fear, not diligent or even obligatory rule following, but love. Proverbs 4.23 warns us, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We indeed need to guard our hearts. Temptation always grows stronger when our hearts grow cold. And the model for love is God himself. It is his great and matchless love shown in the gift and sacrifice of his one and only beloved son that stirs our hearts to want to be holy out of a heart of love for him. And because we love him, we love those he loves like our brothers and sisters, fellow heirs of the same incredible grace that he extends undeservedly to us. But there is one little problem. Without exception, every single one of us is born with a sin nature. More often than not, we don't even really want to be holy, and if we do, it is often a short-lived desire, and it is powerless. We cannot do holiness on our own because everything we touch is contaminated by our sin. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that we have all become like one who is unclean. And he's referring to lepers there. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag, as some translations put it. And this, this is where the gospel comes in. Paul stated emphatically in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood to wash us from our sin, and rose again to give us new life, eternal life. It is eternal in longevity, but more so it is eternally life as opposed to eternal death, which we faced in our sin. Romans 6 verse 11 tells us that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because we are washed clean of our sin in the blood of Jesus Christ, and because we have been dressed in his righteousness, the command to be holy finally becomes a possibility. 
In Romans 8, verse 11, Paul makes this powerful statement. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Later on in describing the power that the Holy Spirit wields, Paul uses the Greek word dunamis or dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. Boom! The power of the Holy Spirit in us is real power, explosive power. There is more than enough to get the job done. Jeremy Camp wrote a song about this entitled, Same Power, and this is the chorus. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us, lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea, lives in us. It lives in us. Do you get that, brothers and sisters? Does that not just fill your heart with hope and encouragement? Remember that Jesus said three words, Lazarus, come forth. And death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Lazarus walked out of the tomb alive, responding to the power with which Jesus commanded him. That's the same power that gives us new life. That's the same power that empowers us to live lives that can be pleasing, that can bring joy to our God. The Holy Spirit, with his dynamite power, resides in us. He lives in us. This is what makes it possible for us to be holy, to live holy lives. Now, notice that I didn't say that we were guaranteed to always live those holy lives. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, then you know that it's a battle, that the old sin nature rears its ugly head far too often. You know the chagrin and discouragement of failure, of falling to the temptation to sin. Of all men, I often consider Paul as a spiritual man's man. Surely he's a man who is so focused on God that he doesn't struggle with sin anymore, right? Well, here's what, the Paul, what Paul, the Apostle Paul, mind you, has to say about himself in Romans 7, verses 15 to 19. He says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wow, Paul struggles this way? And what's his conclusion? For I delight in the law of God, he says, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Does that sound familiar to any of you? Do you struggle like this? Do you experience this battle within, this war that wages in your members? Do you despair sometimes? Does Paul? No. Look at where his hope lies. Look where he turns. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There, brothers and sisters, is where the victory is. So what does the gospel reveal to us? Well, it says this, before salvation, we who were born in sin with a sinful nature are dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. Unless God steps in, we will either be unaware of the burden of our sin or simply miserable in our sin. It is God who gives spiritual life so that we can respond to the offer of salvation. In Romans, we discover that when we repent and turn to God for forgiveness and salvation, he gives us a new birth, a new life with a new nature. This new nature is now residing in us and desires to follow and obey God. Philippians 2.13 tells us it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us, not just to be holy in our actions, but even to desire to be holy, to will his good pleasure. And along with giving us the desire to be holy, he provides us with both the resources and the power to live a godly life. However, this new nature is in constant conflict with our old nature, as we just read in Romans 7. God's word informs us that this will be our experience for as long as we're here on earth. We will need to be intentional on a day-to-day, even a moment-to-moment basis to put our flesh, our old nature, to death, to execute it, to crucify it, to murder it. It's extreme language like we experienced last week in Matthew 18, 7-9. And lastly, God's word tells us we're going to fail. We're going to fall into temptation. We're even going to choose to sin against God from time to time. Remarkably, miraculously, and undeservedly, there is grace to cover those times. If we return to him in repentance, confess our sin, and ask forgiveness. In 1 John 1, John writes, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, John is talking to the believers over whom he watches as a pastor. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. How is Jesus able to be our advocate? On the basis of his righteousness, which has been imputed to us. And finally, the gospel promises us that there will come a day when Christ will take us home to be with him. He will transform these mortal, sin-sick bodies into new bodies, immortal bodies, glorified bodies, without even the presence of sin. Now there's a promise, eh? Are you looking forward to that day? 
Never more will I fall short in glorifying him. Never more will I have to go to him for forgiveness for yet another sin that I've committed. Never more will the relationship between God and I be hindered by my sin. What a future we have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Let's take a look at a few of the ways God has granted us so that we can live lives of godliness. There is no one passage that contains all these things. We are going to be bouncing around to several areas. And I need to tell you that this list is by no means comprehensive. But we're going to look at these things in the context of overcoming temptation, practical ways we can do so. And we'll consider these points. Number one, be immersed in the word. Number two, take thoughts captive. Number three, armor up. Number four, spend time in prayer. Number five, flee lust. And number six, abide in Christ. So our first point, be immersed in the word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And here we have the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness at the start of his earthly ministry. Jesus, our Savior, is our best example of what to do in the face of temptation to sin. But there's a very important point to consider just before we look more closely at the passage, and it's this. Temptation itself is not sin. Hebrews 4.15, speaking about Jesus, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If temptation is sin, then Jesus, who was tempted, would have sinned. And yet, Hebrews tells us that he was without sin. Perhaps you're tempted to lust after someone. Perhaps you struggle with homosexual desires. Perhaps you are tempted to steal, to take something that doesn't belong to you. Perhaps you are tempted to assassinate someone's character so that you can move up in the power structure. Perhaps you're tempted to lie so you avoid the consequences of a bad choice or to prevent someone else from getting something that you want. Perhaps you're tempted to doubt that God will be faithful and so you rely on your own strength, your own wisdom, and your own resources. Whatever the situation, know that temptation almost always begins in our thought life. Much of the time, this is where the battle is lost or won. You see, our enemy, Satan, does not have sovereign power over us. Only God has that. So to say, the devil made me do it, is theologically incorrect. Anyone here enjoy fishing? I have a tackle box that I've built up over the years. It has lots of fishing-related equipment in it, but mostly lures. I have spinners for speckled trout. I have rapalas for pickerel. I have silver spoons for lake trout. I have bobbers and hooks for perch. I mostly fish for bass. And just for bass, I have snelled hooks for live bait, topwater lures for still mornings and evenings. I have these bulked-up harnesses for fall fishing, different lures for different applications. Sadly, what I don't have is the power to make the fish take that lure. Many a time I go out to catch dinner and 
Well, we end up having salad. I can go to one spot on the lake one day and find that frogs don't work, but worms do. And then the next day, same spot, same time of day, the worms don't work. In fact, nothing does, and I go home skunked. Two days later, same spot, same conditions, I catch my limit of bass in an hour on frogs, and there were more to be caught. This is such a good picture of our enemy. He can't make us do anything, but he has an array of lures to use for different applications. Some days he catches us with one, sometimes another, and some days nothing works. Some massive, experienced bass are especially hard to catch. Why? Because they seem to be able to see the lure for what it is, a counterfeit, a fake promise. Let's see how Jesus counters every temptation of Satan's. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) There's an understatement. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, Jesus counters every one of Satan's temptations to sin with the word of God. At one point, Satan even uses the word of God to tempt Jesus. Jesus counters Satan's wrong interpretation of the word with an accurate one. Now, usually our response is, well, I'd like to be able to do that, but I don't think I ever could. I just can't bring the word of God to bear on a situation like he did. And perhaps you're right. Or perhaps you're missing one word, yet. You can't bring the word of God to bear on a situation like that, yet. But with time and diligent study, you could. You ever heard of French immersion programs at a school? It's where you're immersed in the French language. Brothers and sisters, we need to be fully enrolled and engaged in the scripture immersion program. Now, you won't be able to identify the temptation when it comes, nor will you be able to respond appropriately to it unless you study God's word. It's what he left us to use in the battle. But we've got to train. And there are several key areas in which we can do this. Number one, come to church on Sundays, ready to learn. Our job as pastors is to take God's word and help you to understand and apply it. But do you come as a student, or are you only passively present? Edgar Dale says that we remember 10% of what we read, 20% of what we hear, 30% of what we see. 
50% of what we see and hear. 70% of what we discuss with others, 80% of what we personal experience, and 95% of what we teach others. Now, I'm not sure exactly how you measure all that, but I do know that if I sit and listen only when, say, Germain preaches, it's mostly gone after I leave church. But if I take notes while he preaches, I retain so much more. And I love the discussions that we have afterward because that's where I really get to consider how to apply what we've studied to our day-to-day -day lives. And I learn a lot from the various perspectives that are shared in those discussions. The more you engage people, the more you're going to learn. Secondly, engage in personal study. Now, study is more than just doing your daily reading and then checking the little box on a Bible reading plan. Pick up a journal or notebook at the dollar store. Make notes on what stands out in the passage you've read. Meditate on it and memorize. Write helpful verses on a recipe card or a post-it note. Judy puts verses that she wants to memorize on the windowsill above the sink. She works on memorizing them while she washes some dishes. Print the verses clearly and put them in a Ziploc bag. When you go in the shower, Make the shower wall wet and then stick the bag on the wall. It'll stay there until you peel it off. You can change it up every week. You could learn 52 new verses in a year. And then thirdly, get together with other men or women and do a study together. Not only do you build relationships this way, but you can challenge and encourage each other in your spiritual battles. Now, these are just some of the ways that you can fill your spiritual armory with the Word of God so that you can perceive and deflect the temptations of the enemy. Point number two, take thoughts captive. I want you to write down 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. This is a key verse for you to memorize. It reads as follows. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And every temptation that we face is an argument to doubt God's promises and commands, to raise up the world's opinions or our own opinions against the knowledge of God as revealed in his word. We need to assess our thoughts, especially our thoughts, to see if they align with God's word. Last week, we considered the verses in James 1, 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Recognize that the performing of a sinful act is typically the last step in a process. And the process starts with a thought. Take lust, for example. Men, we are wired by God to be visually stimulated, and specifically to be stimulated visually by our wives inside the bounds of marriage. And it's a good thing. But sin corrupts every good thing that God has created. And now, guys, you're driving down the road, and on the sidewalk, there's an attractive young woman walking along. You notice. That's not the sin. Consider what happens next, though. 
the thought enters your head, whoo, hey, check her out. And what you're suddenly wanting to do is get another look to satisfy the visual stimulation aspect of your being with a woman who is not yours to be satisfied by. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men, we need to guard our eyes, our thoughts, and our hearts, every part of our being, so that we can live holy lives for God's glory. This means being aware of Satan's tricks and countering them at step one. When you see that attractive woman on the sidewalk and you're tempted to take that second lingering look, you turn your head away and you recall and recite Psalm 101 verse 3. Psalm 101 verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Follow up the negative, what you won't do, with a positive, what you'll do instead. Now recite Psalm 26 verse 3. Psalm 26 verse 3, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Incidentally, wives, if your husband is a man who desires purity for his eyes, you can help him in this struggle by providing the appropriate source for his visual stimulation. Within the bounds of a godly marriage, there isn't any place for prudishness. God gave you to each other to enjoy. And again, because of the corruption that sin has brought to our culture, women can be tempted to be very critical of their own bodies and how they look. I guarantee you one thing. If you are in a loving, godly marriage with a husband who desires to honor God with his life, and loves you with his whole heart, he deeply enjoys looking at your body, regardless of how you feel about it. While you're thinking, I'm getting older, or I've put on some weight, or our babies have changed the way my body looks, your husband, <laughs> he's thinking, hubba hubba, which translated means, this is the woman I love, whom I've always loved and who loves me. We have been through some joys and some challenges together. We've built a life together. I see this woman through the lens of love, and she's smoking hot. Am I right, guys? Okay, what about envy? We look at another person and we see what they have. Maybe it's material goods, nice truck, cruise vacations, a lovely home. Maybe it's a solid marriage relationship they have that we wish we had as well. Maybe it's the perfect family or a successful business. Maybe their children are walking closely with God and oh, we wish ours were. And the thought enters our head, why doesn't God give me that same thing? And before long, we're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. We are doubting God's goodness, his fairness, his justice. We start wondering if he loves us, if he plays favorites. Is God really loving? Brothers and sisters, one of our problems is that we are good forgetters. In the moment, we forget all of his past faithfulness and goodness and provision for us. We forget that he initiated the plan of salvation before we ever turn to him. 
We forget that he gave his one and only son as our substitute on the cross. We forget. And what does Jesus command us, his followers, to do? Remember. Remember him in his death. He knows that we are made of dust. He knows that we're good forgetters. That's why he instituted the remembrance feast. When we consistently participate in what we call communion, when we spend time as we do remembering Jesus, remembering his obedience, his love, his selfless sacrifice, his purity, his compassion, when we regularly bring bring these things to mind and dwell on them, we fill our spiritual warehouse with meditations of Jesus. And then along comes the enemy, desiring to fill our hearts with envy over what God has in his infinite wisdom granted to another. And our hearts are full of the overwhelming love of Christ for us. Envy then has no draw because we're already satisfied, satisfied in Jesus. That supposedly perfect family that someone else has, you are adopted into the family of God. You are a child of the King and loved with a love that is everlasting and incorruptible. That successful business that someone else enjoys or all those material things they have, every resource that you could ever need, God will supply. Take your thoughts captive. Bring them to Christ. Be honest with him about them and study his word to see what he says about them and then commit it to memory. Thirdly, armor up. We're going to turn now to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, the classic passage on the armor of God. As he wrote this prison epistle, Paul was likely chained between two Roman soldiers, and if not, he was regularly able to examine one. And he considered the parts of the Roman soldier's armor, the Holy Spirit showed him applications to our spiritual battle. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, there's so much in this passage, more than enough for a separate sermon, maybe even a sermon series. Let me briefly draw your attention to some things in this passage. I encourage you to go back and do a study of this passage on your own. 
Verse 12, we're reminded that our real enemy is not the people around us. The real battle is a spiritual one. When Satan tempts you to treat that person in your life who annoys, aggravates, or even abuses you, remember that he or she is not the enemy. The enemy is a spiritual one working through that individual. You need to apply a spiritual approach to the situation. The Word of God, taking thoughts captive, prayer. And to protect yourself in the battle, you need the armor of God. Verse 14, the belt of truth. Some protection for the bowels where the feelings were believed to reside. Our feelings are most often not reliable. We need to bring our feelings in line with the truth. The belt kept soldiers from getting tripped up in their cloaks. The truth keeps us from getting tripped up by false ideas and false ideologies. There's also the breastplate of righteousness, protecting our heart. Our righteousness is not found in our own achievements, but rather our righteousness is a result of the love of Jesus poured out for us on the cross of Calvary. Verse 15, the shoes of the gospel of peace. The gospel is where we have our firm footing, our solid foundation. If we are grounded in the gospel, we are far less likely to doubt, far less likely to be misled, far less likely to be tempted to pride or independence or any sin against our brother or sister. Verse 16, the shield of faith. Knowing what we believe and in whom our faith lies gives us what we need to extinguish those flaming arrows that the enemy shoots at us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, states the old hymn. Our faith lies not in ourselves, not in our good deeds, not in our institutions. Your faith ought not to lie in your pastors either. Our faith rests in the perfect, finished work of Jesus on the cross and the acceptance, the validation of that work by God the Father as demonstrated by the fact that he raised Christ from the dead. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is where our faith is founded. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation. It protects our head, our thoughts. When we are tempted to think that we're all that in a bag of chips, we are reminded that we needed a Savior because we were powerless to save ourselves. And not just another man, but Jesus, the perfect man and the Son of God. And when we're tempted to think we are worthless, we're nothing, we're unlovable, we are reminded that in eternity past, we were already in God's thoughts, and God was already putting into action a plan to save us individually. That plan cost God his one and only Son. That's how great his love is for you. Now, everything described so far is defensive, protective. The only thing mentioned in this passage that is offensive in nature is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And just as Jesus countered every attack of Satan with God's Word, we are to do the same. Notice as well that all that armor protects the front. There's no armor for the back. That's because we are in most cases not meant to run exposing our backs. The passage reiterates time and again, stand, stand, stand firm. Your armor will hold. You need to stand. The fourth item, spend time in prayer. 
most people, when reading the passage in Ephesians, actually stop at verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It seems like it's the last piece of weaponry mentioned. But there's actually a a comma there, not a period. Verse 18 is crucial. It continues, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul is indicating here that our primary weapon, our primary defense in the battle is prayer. Prayer humbles us. Prayer reminds us that it's not about us. There is a bigger power than us. There is a bigger plan. There is a greater purpose. As children of God, we have the inestimable privilege of being part of that plan and purpose. Bringing the worthy God glory in the process. Coming to him and spending time with him in prayer, we are reminded that we submit our wills to his, our lives to his purposes. We don't include God in our lives. We align our lives to serve him in his kingdom. Jesus often went up the mountain to pray, to commune with his father. If Jesus, as the sinless God-man, needed to do it, then we definitely need to be doing so. We need to pray for ourselves and pray for our brothers and sisters who are under attack and pray for the lost who are deceived and on their way to hell. We need to pray. Fifth point is to flee lust. So there is one exception to the command that we read in Ephesians to stand, and that's with regard to lust. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Sexual temptation is incredibly powerful. And your first temptation, if this is a problem for you, is actually the thought that, hey, a real Christian would be able to take this and fight back. God's word says, get out of there. God designed the bond of sexual attraction to be incredibly strong so that it would help to hold husbands and wives together through the very difficult things that life so often throws our way. But as we've said before, it is intended to be applied within the bounds of marriage and nowhere else. There are no exceptions When you're tempted sexually, the lie that you believe, the lie that you might even tell yourself is, I can go close to the edge and just retreat when things start going too far. You want to be wise? You want to honor God with your sexuality? Get out of the situation when you're tempted. Run. Get. Flee. Don't stick around. Finally, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. All of what we've talked about could essentially be considered legalistic self-help steps if we are not abiding in Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, 
you can do nothing. What can we accomplish apart from Jesus? Absolutely nothing. Abide in him, brothers and sisters. It means reside. Make your dwelling place, your home, his presence. Immerse yourself in his presence, in his love, in his person. Know him and be known by him. Love will be your greatest defense against temptation. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here as followers of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as children of yours, and it is our desire to to honor you with our lives, with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And yet we acknowledge this morning that we are so easily drawn to sin. Our sin nature is still there within us, battling us and tripping us up. And Father, we struggle with it. We thank you for the grace that you provide to forgive us when we do fall. And as we come back to you in repentance and submission to you and ask for your forgiveness, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. Oh God, how can we thank you enough for all that you have done for us? We would ask you this morning that as we go from here, that that a, a fire would be lit within us, a, a passion might burn within us to live holy lives because you are holy. And that everything we do and are points to you so that you are glorified. And and lost sinners are drawn to you and, and come to you for forgiveness and salvation. Father, help us to, to live like your children. And as Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.